0: we're looking at part three in our lesson uh, in our series jesus is jesus the only way to god and we're this series is you by now i hope you know is uh, three questions in one when you ask is jesus the only way to god you're really asking three questions and they're there at the top of your notes will anyone experience eternal conscience torment Under God's wrath in hell. We addressed that. We looked at that. And now you know that you can go to glenwoodconnection.org and go on the website. You can download those uh, messages and notes and look at that. Question number two, is the work of Jesus necessary for salvation? We addressed that. But we're looking at this third question. We're taking the most time on it because it's the one that I think is the, where we would struggle the most. And I hope that this series has created tension, tension in your heart. And I know it has because some of you have already given feedback that, you know, in fact, I had one, uh, one man said, you know, in college I was exposed to uh, many different ideas about salvation, many different ideas about religion. And through this series, I've come to realize that I picked those up in college. I was exposed to them, but I also was impacted by them. And I realize that the way is more narrow than perhaps what I've... In the back of my mind, maybe not in the forefront of what I would say, but in the back of my mind. And so some of you are making... feeling that tension... And perhaps it's even surfacing some confusion. Wow, how would I answer this question? And the question we're really looking at is, is conscious faith in Jesus necessary for salvation? So you have that in your notes. Is conscious faith? Yes, Jesus is necessary. Yes, there is a hell. But what about the untold billions who have never heard? What about that person in... Siberia, who has not been exposed, who, who has lived under a communism and that denied God and, and did not have any access to the gospel, any access to a Bible-believing church, uh, they say there are billions who have never, even heard, never even heard the name Jesus Christ. So what about them? Uh, are, are they saved? Are they destined for hell? Uh, does God make exceptions? What is going on? Is conscious faith in Jesus necessary for salvation? And the inclusivist, we said, would answer, no, no. The inclusivist would say, no, no, conscious faith isn't necessary. Jesus is necessary. No one's going to get to heaven apart from Christ but they don't have to know about Him, and they don't have to place faith in Him and His name. Notice what it says. Those who have never heard of Jesus but sincerely respond in faith to God based on the light that they do have will be saved on the basis of the work of Jesus. So again, I want you to realize they're not saying Christ isn't necessary. In fact, that's what we're going to focus on today. Now, where do they get this? Well, they have two axioms. An axiom is simply a presupposition. Okay, if you're going to ask me the question, what about those who have never heard, where am I going to start? And here's what an inclusivist would say. You need to start with these two axioms. And the first one we studied last week, axiom number one, the love of God for all people and His desire for universal salvation. You've got to start, according to an inclusivist, you've got to start with the love of God. Now, we looked last week at some passages, in particular, John 3.16, 1 Timothy 2, 2 Peter 3, nine. Nothing wrong with those passages. So don't get the idea, oh, we're rejecting those passages in order to refute inclusivism. No, there's nothing wrong with the passages. What's wrong? It's what they do with the passages. It's that they take these passages out of context and they take these passages and they, they determine everything by these passages. So the problem is not the passages. The problem is their problem Uh, The problem is what they do with those passages. So notice we looked at some of the problems with the inclusivist axiom that God's love is the highest value, and he wills that all people without exception not just have access uh, to salvation, but ultimately in a sense that they also must be saved. Now, the two problems we saw, and and I want to repeat this because it's so important, is the number one problem is the focus on God's love for people as greater than any other of His attributes, such as holiness and justice. And we looked, and I want to read these again, Isaiah 6-3, when the prophet Isaiah had a vision of heaven, so he gets access to heaven, the first thing that he hears is the seraphim, the cherubim, Surrounding the throne, one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I find that amazing. That which is proclaimed in heaven is revealed in all the earth. You can look at creation. The whole earth is filled, not just with the love of God. Yes, it's there. But every other attribute of God, which when they are all combined, is thrice holy. Three times holy. And in the scriptures, when you repeat something three times, it means like it's the ultimate. It's the maximum. The whole earth. Now, at the end of Revelation, here's what they say. They're still doing it. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night. Now, you put these two together, what do you have? You've got the whole earth filled with His glory day and night, and here's what they shout Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The universality, the eternality of that, it's eternal, it's universal and it's filling the earth, and it's not just love. It's holiness, it's justice, it's mercy, it's compassion, and it's lots of that. But it's also justice, righteousness, and holiness. And so the second problem is, they had uh, with when, they fo- when you over-focus on the love of God is that God's heart desire is mistaken for His sovereign will. His compassion for sinners, which is evident, for God so loved the world, but that is seen as equal with His actually choosing to save them. And we said the bottom line from last week was this. Maintain the biblical tension between God's compassion being without exception and God's choice being without distinction. Here's the bottom line. God's compassion is without exception. There's not a human or an animal or a plant or a star or a galaxy that God doesn't have compassion on. In fact, I could take you to the Psalms, and it's filled, and it says His compassion is over all His creation. So God has mercy on everyone without exception. But the reality is that God's choice for salvation is without distinction, but not without exception. If God's salvation, if his saving will was without exception, what would that mean? If his sovereign will in choosing and distributing grace was without exception, what would that mean? Well, it doesn't matter what we do, but what would be the outcome? Donna's got it. Everybody would be what? Saved. I mean, if it's without exception, I'm going to choose all to be saved, then everyone is going to be saved, and then we would be universalists. And then what are you going to do with all the passages that says many will find the wide road to destruction? What do you do? What's hell about? Well, we've already seen that hell's a reality, so universalism is not an option. So it's not without exception, but it is without distinction. That is, no one is eliminated from the possibility of salvation in the sense that whether you're young or old, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're an American or an African, whether you are religious or irreligious, whether you're a horrible, outright, uh, perverse, immoral, the worst of sinners, or you're the most upright self-righteous prig of a pious person, Jesus, God, will save you. And coupled with that is every single person on this planet is made in the image of God. Everyone is responsible to respond to God. You say, well, now this is where Francis, who I don't think she's here today, but asked this two weeks ago. Now, how how do you work that out that God only chooses some, but the offer is to all and all are accountable to respond? Well, I'm like Charles Spurgeon. I, I, I don't reconcile good friends. In the Bible, both of those are held in tension and you just have to hold it in tension. But the reality is the reality. And you can't hold those in tension. You can't try to reconcile those by eliminating one or the other. Well, I'm just going to camp on human responsibility. I'm going to camp on that. And, and we determine our destiny. Well, let me ask you, how's that working for you? How's determining your destiny working for you? Life just like you determined it? Now, just think, if we can't determine this week... You really think we're determining our eternity? I mean, you want that responsibility? You really want that in your hands? And yet we are responsible for the choices we make. At the same time, God's choice is without distinction. It includes men, women, young, old, every tribe, every nation. This is why, ultimately, our failure in witnessing will not hinder anyone being saved whom god has chosen in christ and so again you got to keep this tension does god use means yes god uses us to lead people to christ i must do that and there's if i'm a true believer i want to do that i want to do it you know one of the most encouraging things now we'll have a testimony next week one of the most encouraging things from last couple months and and from these series in particular, is it's is hearing the ripple of people saying, and I've heard at least two men, and that's been very encouraging to me, of, you know what, I'm just starting to witness. I'm just starting to share. I'm, I'm just taking that responsibility, and it's just coming out. And you know what, there's a joy in it. There's a joy in it. It's not a burden. It's not a drudgery. And, and it's so freeing to get out of that guilty feeling that I just missed an opportunity. How I many can relate to that guilty feeling? You know, of, oh, I want to be a witness. You know, you hear this and you're, oh, I want, yeah, yeah, I know I want to do. And you go out and you're all down versus, wow, I did it. That was exciting. That was cool. And you know what? It breaks your heart and it gives you a greater burden. Well, these are, these are the things that we looked at. But we need to look at axiom number two, and that's this. The second axiom that an inclusivist would hold to is the necessity and finality of Jesus Christ for salvation. The necessity and finality of Jesus Christ for salvation. Now, I want you to understand that the focus of an inclusivist who says, Hey, those who have never heard will be saved by faith in God without ever knowing who Jesus really was here on earth. The focus is on the necessity of Jesus Christ for anyone to be saved. But the necessity does not have to mean that they ever hear the gospel or believe on the name of Christ. Now, you've got to feel that. You've got to think through that. Because ultimately, I believe there's probably many of us who in the back of our minds, if you were pushed on this question, what happens to those who had never heard, would fall into that position. Well, surely... For God to be fair and for this to be right, somehow they somehow it's just going to work out and Jesus will make it all better in the end. Well, that's the inclusive position. Now, the, the evangelical inclusivist makes the same claim. But here's what I want you to do. It's making the same claim as Oprah. And that quote is at the top of your notes and we've seen the video at least twice in this series. And that's this, that God does not care so much about the name of Jesus he just looks at the heart to see if people are good, loving, and sincere in their faith. Remember, that's what she said. The lady said, but what about Jesus? And and Oprah shot back, what about Jesus? You really think, and she said, you really think that, that God cares about the name versus just looking at the heart? Well, see, if I say Oprah, you're like, oh, yeah, <laughs> okay. Most of you would say that, yeah, that's over there. But do you understand that evangelical scholars and, and many Bible-believing Christians would say the same thing about those who have never heard? We just wouldn't think it's as bad because we're saying it or we think it versus who? Oprah. But see, it's not about who's saying it. It's about the truthfulness of what we believe. Is that the truth? Is that the way it really works out? Are you with me on this? Does God really care? So here's the question. Does God really care about people hearing the name of Jesus in order to be saved? Or will he circumvent that? Will he work around that? Still save them based on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But, but they're sincere, their faith, they're seeking, they're groping. Okay, we'll let them in. It's the heart that matters to the inclusivist, not the head. It's the sincerity of their faith that matters, not the content of their faith. But there's two verses that stand directly in the road, that are direct roadblocks to thinking that way. And you have them there in your notes. The first is Acts 4.12. Nor is there salvation in any other, referencing Christ. For there is no other name under heaven given among men... By which we must be saved. Acts 4:12 and then John 14:6, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now you would think, and you have been taught and probably most of you believe that, that those are you know those are slam dunks. How do you get around that? How do you get around? It? Well here's how an inclusive, is. they'd say, I believe both those things. If Clark Pinnock was still alive and he was here, he'd say, I believe both of them. No one's going to come to the Father except through Jesus. They would also say, there's no other name. But here's what he would mean by that. There's no other authority. But you don't have to know the identity of the Savior. There's no other authority by which people are saved. Everyone is saved by Jesus Christ. They just don't know it. Are you with me? And there's no other way to the Father except through Jesus. You just don't have to know that He is the way. You just have to place your faith in God with sincerity to what you do know and God who sees the heart and is not concerned with the name of His Son being known. And that alone should say, danger, danger, that doesn't fit with Scripture. The fame of His name, that's what... That's what the Bible is about. Well, let's look at it. Two things you need to do maintain the biblical tension of the authority to save and the identity of the Savior. We have to maintain, we don't want to separate those. What the inclusivists do is they separate out here's Jesus, the only way. Okay? Only way. And he's the only way because he has all the authority. But you don't need to know his identity until you're already dead, you're you're saved, he'll save you anyway, and then you'll figure out in eternity, oh, it was you, it was you. Okay, so they separate out authority and identity, and what I'm saying is, from the scriptures we'll see that you cannot separate those two, you've got to maintain them. Let's look at it. Well, turn your Bibles to Acts 4.12. Open your Bibles, turn your Bibles to Acts 4.12, and we'll just kind of look at that and kind of break it down a little bit. I'll try to be fair and show you what an inclusivist would argue from this passage and even show you that, yeah, you know, you can kind of see where they're getting this. But I'll try to show you as well that when you study it in context, you see a, a, a much different message. So it's Acts 3 and 4. I mean, this is right after Acts 2. The great revival, over 3,000 are saved, and now they're out, and God is beginning to fulfill the mission. And so Peter and John have gone out, and in Acts 3, they encounter a lame man who is a beggar, and they say to him, in fact, we can just look there, Acts 3, verse 6, the famous verse, Acts 3, 6, he's begging for alms as they go in the temple to pray. And then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. I mean, it's not only his name. He's a historical person from a specific town. This isn't the cosmic Christ. This isn't, as Oprah said, Christ consciousness. Some abstract idea that you can read into it whatever you want. No, this is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Born to specific parents in a specific time, crucified by a specific Roman ruler in a specific place. I mean, it's it's a, a historical person. Rise up and walk, and of course he rose up and walked, and this caused caused a great um, a great bit of conflict, as you can imagine. And so the uh, Rome, uh, the Jewish rulers call him in and uh, arrest uh, or uh, interrogate them, and in three sixteen he says. They, they want to know, uh, how did you do this? Or in whose name did you do this? How did this come about? And, and the answer is given as he preaches through to them in verse 16. And his name, that is Christ, through faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him. God is the means of the faith. Jesus Christ is the means of the faith. Through Him has given Him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And so it goes on and they they get arrested. And it moves on into chapter 4. And in chapter 4, verse 10, they want to know again, you know, how, who, did you, how, who did this? How did this happen? Verse 10, look at chapter 4, verse 10. Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, again, a specific person in specific historical circumstances, by him this man stands here before you. And then he, uh, before you hold, then he says, this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. You've got to understand that he's saying, look, you have rejected him. Now, verse 12 is going to say, even though you have rejected him, here's who he, he is, regardless of your response to him. In other words, you don't determine who the Savior is. You guys, you Jewish leaders think you determine this. But God determines. So notice, you rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Verse 12, and and by the way, chief cornerstone could be interpreted by Jews as to be just the Jewish Messiah, you know, the chief cornerstone of the temple. Uh, You know, uh, you guys rejected him as Messiah, but God has appointed him. This could all be very Jewish except for the next verse. Look at the next verse. Nor is there salvation in what? In any other. For there is what? No other name under heaven given among men, mortals, humans, mankind, men, women, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor. See, it's without it's without distinction. By which we must be saved. Now... Here's what's amazing. An inclusiveist looks at that and says, "Yeah, I agree with verse 12." But here's what I here's what it means. I don't see any in, anything in there in verse 12 about conscious faith. That's what he says. That's how they eliminate. It. He's not talking about conscious faith. He's talking about, according to the inclusivist, the authority to save. And so they interpret that name as authority. So let's, let's plug that in and see how that works. Nor is there salvation in any other name, for there is no other authority under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's no other authority. It's, that's the authority that God uses. They don't have to know the content. Now, does that kind of seem like it fits? When you just kind of plug that in, it does. In fact, the name, there's power. Don't we sing power? There's power in the name. There's authority in the name. But is that all that it is? Is that all that it means? In fact, if you go over to 3.6, this authority interpretation really seems to fit. Notice again what Peter said in verse 6. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you in the name or by the authority of jesus christ of nazareth rise up and walk so you know whether you know the name this is the authority by which i do it that's how they would argue that um so what do you think about that there's no other authority 4.12, 4.12, we're just going to read into that authority. Name simply means authority. It does not mean identity. What, what are we going to do with that? Well, when you first read it and plug it in, you're like, wow, that's kind of convincing. You know, in the name. Why do we pray in the name of Jesus? What are we really saying? In a very fundamental sense, we're saying by the authority. You know, I just prayed these things not in my Name, my authority. I just prayed in the name, the authority of Jesus. What about all the, uh, the healings? You know, they, they were, people were, uh, ca- demons were cast out. And right here, someone's healed by the authority of Jesus. Certainly not the authority of Peter and John. It wouldn't be our authority in the name. So are you ready to become an inclusivist? Yes? <laughs> okay, well, done a good job then, I guess. No, think about this. First of all, name. Does anyone's name just mean their authority? What's the most funnal, fundamental meaning of name? Who you, who you are, who you came from. Who you are, who you came from. It, it, it's your identity. I mean, the most fundamental, when you think of name, the name of Jesus, you don't first think authority, you first think what? That's who He is. And throughout Scripture, we won't take time to, to trace all this out, but you guys have heard us say this enough and shown it enough that in Proverbs, a good name is greater to be desired than riches. Now, is that saying good authority is greater? No, name is your identity, it's who you are, it's your character. It, 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 it's, it's, it's everything about you, not just... Your what? It includes your authority, too, because certain persons carry greater authority. If I say, hey, I want you to do this in the name of Chris Riggis, well, that may carry weight with some of you, but with most of you, you'd say, well, that's nice, but I have as much authority as you, and you would be right. But if I came and I said, well, I'm going to do this in the name of President Obama, and I have his authority. Well, see, if you did it in his name, you know, maybe that's not the best illustration, but I'm using it anyway. Uh, what would you do? Oh, I have to do that. Why? Because that name carries authority. But that authority is not separated from the identity of who that person is. Because if I said that to you, hey, Julie, by the authority, by the name, in the name of President Obama, I want you to do this. Well, your first question would—you you would not doubt that President uh, Obama has authority, would you? But you'd want to know if I knew him. You know, what do you know him? Because if you don't know him, if there's no connection with him, then you saying that in his authority means nothing. And so it, it's kind of like the love thing. Does God have love? Yes, but is that the highest? Is that the only attribute? Well, here's the same thing. Does name have authority? Yes, but its authority is rooted in the identity, and you've seen this in these passages. That's why he says, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. You need to know who I'm doing this in. It's, I have his authority. I'm an apostle. I'm a sent one. You know, He could have said, you are healed, and he would have, he would have been healed. Why did he take the time? to say, I want you to not only know the authority of the one who is about to heal you, but a greater issue is I want you to know the identity, his name, and have a relationship. Also, as you look through these verses that we've read, they're all prefaced around the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Where does Jesus get his authority? from dying living a perfect life dying for our sins but most of all from rising from the dead he has that authority so the authority is not separate from who he is and what he has done and you need to know about both of those in order to benefit from the authority now let me show you this in a couple of these verses here in context First of all, in verse 6, chapter 3, verse 6, I've already said the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. It's important for you to know who this is. Then look at verse 16 of chapter 3. He says, on the basis of faith in his name. Now, inclusivists would say, yeah, faith in his authority. uh, Well, actually, even faith in his name, you can't even get authority out of that because you'd have to know the authority You'd have to place your faith in that authority and they're not placing faith in his authority when they look at creation. When they look at the stars and they say, I put my faith in a God that's big enough to make all this. That's not putting your faith in the, in the authority of Jesus Christ. You're just putting faith in something bigger than creation. Okay, so that right there, faith in his name. And then he says, now, lest you, <laughs> lest you uh, not know which name this is, it is the name of Jesus which has, which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. So we want you to know who the identity is. Then it says, and the faith which comes through him. You couldn't emphasize that anymore. This isn't just authority that's floating out here available to anyone apart from... Who Jesus is. I mean, do you see that? It comes through him. Even the faith to believe comes through him. And has given this man perfect presence. Now, look at 410. 410 comes right before 412. Notice what it says. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom you raised. So again, the source of the authority is in the identity of the risen one. But notice the next phrase. By him, this man stands here before you. Now, I'd circle that. Is that an abstract authority? Is that a nameless person? Is that a someone you... No, by him. I want you to know it's by him. Uh, in fact, let me read this in the ESV. Uh, it says let it be known to all of you and to all people of israel that by the name of jesus christ of nazareth whom you crucified whom you raised from the dead by him this man is standing before you the uh, holman christian standard bible says by him this man is standing before you healthy now does anybody have the niv okay does anybody have the nasb okay some of you got the nasb some of you may have an niv now notice in it Uh, they say at the last... Well, someone read the... No no one has the NIV? Okay, somebody's got the NIV. Now, notice what it says. In the NIV, it says, Then know this, you and all the people of Israel is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands. They don't have the by him. It just says that this man stands. Read the New American Standard. Okay, they translate it by this name, and so that leaves. So what I'm I'm, I'm probably overworking this, but what I want you to realize is that even so there is some um, um, freedom in the translation that you don't have to specifically say in that last clause, by him. Those translations that have that make this point much clearer. You know, it's by him, that person. And yet the NIV, which is a looser translation, and the NAS, which is a very literal, both eliminate that. And the NAS even adds a little bit more by saying by his name. But here's my point. Whether it comes right out and says that, the whole point before that is this one whom you crucified and whom God has raised is the one who has this authority. The point is you simply can't get away from identity, coupled with authority. You just cannot separate that out. Let me give you some other examples uh, in Scripture. Look at at, uh, Acts 5, 41 and 42. Acts 5, 41 and 42. Another persecution context, and we'll get we'll talk about that in a moment. Notice 541. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Again, if you plug in authority there, it sounds weird. Okay, we're being persecuted for the authority of Christ. I mean, are people going to really risk your life just for a, an abstract principle of authority. But then look at the next verse. Look at verse 42. And daily in the temple, in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Listen, they weren't just going around in the authority of his name. They were preaching his identity and his name. And, look, and think about this. It's the opposite of what these guys are saying. Here's what the inclusive says. You can have authority without the identity. What these guys, what Acts says, is you must preach the identity to have any authority. And we need to remember that. Because how often do we witness God, God? We shouldn't be witnessing just about God. We should be witnessing about who? The name, Jesus Christ. There's some songs we sing upstairs that I hope you will forever sing differently the name, the name, the name. Because without preaching his identity, there is no authority. It's quite the opposite of what the inclusivist says. Now, we could go on. These guys, there's many things. But the second thing I want to say is this. Maintain the biblical tension of the necessity of Jesus Christ and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. The second passage that the inclusivist uh, would say I have no problem with is John fourteen six. What does John fourteen six say? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but what? Through me. Inclusive says I agree inclusive says, I agree. Nobody can get to heaven except through him. They just don't have to know him. Well the same guy the same apostle that wrote John fourteen And the same Savior that said John 14 said John 17, 3. Turn your Bibles to John 17, 3. Turn your Bibles to John 17, 3 and notice what it says. Jesus Probably one of the the most important verses, because it defines what eternal life is. And this is eternal life. Are you ready for the definition? That they may know you, that is, the only true God. Okay, an inclusivist would say, they would cut the verse off right there. That all you have to do for salvation is the only identity you have to know is, is faith in the one true God, and then the nameless authority of Christ will save you. But notice what Jesus said, and and he spe- and he's speaking in the first person. He doesn't say and me. He says and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. There's no other name given among men than the name Jesus Christ. Now, notice what it says. So, and, and that word know is gnosko. It's not just... There's, there's two words. There's one word for just knowledge, and then there's a word in the Greek for intimate knowledge, that knowledge through experience. So he's saying you not only have to know the name of Jesus, you have to intimately know that person who bears that name. And that's why when people say and in fact, Oprah said that in that debate that we saw, she said, well, what? You just have to know the name? Jesus. Jesus. I know the name. I'm in there. No, you have to gnosko. You have to know him intimately. You have to know who he is, but also you have to have a personal relationship with him. When you see the word know there, don't think of intellectual, just intellectual knowledge. Think of the Bible, when it says, "And Adam knew his wife Eve, and she, and they they bore a child," do I have to tell you what knowledge there means? Okay, and it's not and, and two extremes. It's not just intellectual, and it's not just sexual. It's that total knowing, that intimacy where you become one. That's the knowledge that's necessary for eternal life. So notice the quote. It says, To say there is good news for unevangelized that does not include the preaching of the person and the work of Jesus Christ is another gospel, a different gospel of a wider hope that makes salvation available to people who have never even heard of Jesus. Now, here's all I want to say, and this is the conclusion. There's only one conclusion. If you take Acts 4.12 and you take John 14.6 in context and you take it for what it literally, in the most simplest understanding, the most obvious understanding, there's only one conclusion. The two axioms of inclusivism are inadequate for determining the destiny of those who have never heard, and I've summarized it this way. Number one, love is not the overriding characteristic of God's character. Holiness is. All that God is and all that He does is pure, right, just and compassionate at the same time, even if we cannot understand it and even if we don't agree with it. What about those who have never heard? That's not loving. That doesn't change the fact that it is loving, it is right, it is pure. Number two, while God shows compassion to all His creation, unsaved and saved, people and animals, He does not have to choose to save all who are lost to be loving or just. And that's the implication. And, folks, I'm telling you, that's where we go in our natural reasoning apart from Scripture. That for God to be loving and just, in the end, if you carry that to its extreme without Scripture, it comes down to this. He's got to save everybody. He's got to save everybody. Number three the Lord Jesus Christ is the one mediator and only divine means of saving sinners so that the gospel of Christ must be preached to the lost and they must repent and believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. So while God is sovereign, man is responsible and we still have this question, but what about those who have never heard? Is their destiny determined by our failure? Is that fair? That because we don't give enough to missions, send enough to missions, go enough on missions, people are going to be in hell. Is that fair? Well, we're going to have to still study out that one, but we know that this much is true based on these two verses. Look at number four, and this perhaps is most important to get under your belt. Inclusivism's two axioms not only distort biblical truth, not so much how they state them, but what, how they interpret them and how they apply them, okay? they also are too limited to determine the destiny of those who have never heard. For example, who says there's only two axioms, two presuppositions, two key points in order to answer this question? God is love, Jesus is necessary. Wow, here's this awesome question that determines the destiny of billions hangs in the balance, and we're just going to say, oh, there's just, we can solve that with two little statements. God is love and Jesus is necessary. That just doesn't even make sense. But notice some that they're missing. God's sovereign grace and mercy. Notice God's sovereignty is not even mentioned. Secondly, humanity's radical sinful nature and will, willful rebellion. You know, it's not even even emphasized that those who are, have never heard are rebelling against God. And then number three, every person's responsibility to respond to the light that they do have and how do they do that? By glorifying their creator and giving him thanks for who he is and all that he's done in their heart, their mind, their body, and their soul. Listen, if these folks who have never heard of Christ are going to be saved, the standard of God is they must glorify him in mind, body, soul, with all their strength as their as their creator. And they need to give thanks to him. Thanksgiving needs to be a 24-7 every minute of their life. Now, how many of those folks do you think are doing that? About as many as are doing that right here in this room. None of them. And yet they're responsible for that. So we still haven't answered the question, ultimately, from the Bible, but we're showing that the inclusivist answer is inadequate. Their axioms are too limited. And then next week, we're going to delve into those four arguments that they have to defend their viewpoint and then we'll be done with them i'm ready to be done with them i think you're ready to be done with them but i do want to hit these four arguments and again here's why i want to do it not because i think there's secret inclusivists out there i don't have a list of you and there's stars that i think i suspicion i think she is an inclusivist but here's what i know that we have a tendency to read our bibles shut those bibles and then deal with life's problems and we have a tendency to deal with this issue of what about those who have never heard. We have a tendency to deal with it with our heart and not with our heads. And we need head and heart. And I think you're going to recognize some of your thinking in these four arguments, of which one of them is, what about babies? And if you make an exception for infants, you know, because you know, I've emphasized in the series, and one man said, boy, it's really struck me how you've said no exception, no exception. But in a sense, you exclusivists, you people who say no other way but Jesus do have an exception because most of you believe that infants are in heaven and yet they don't know his identity or his authority. And not only that, they've never even placed their faith in their creator. But that should give you a clue of why it's different. Are you going to keep coming? All right. Hang in there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, we are not dependent on the thoughts of our hearts. We're not dependent on our feelings. We're not dependent on the opinions of scholars. And uh, we're not even dependent on each other's opinions. Lord, we're dependent on the revealed Word of God. And sometimes in refuting false doctrine, we can so muddy the waters. And I pray that I haven't done that. And sometimes the simplicity of the gospel gets set aside, and that's what Paul was concerned about. He said Lord, he didn't want the Corinthians to be deceived and swept away from the simple fact that there is no other name. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's the authority and identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray we would all again address our hearts. Have I placed my trust? Is there a moment in time where I've placed my trust in Christ? Where do I stand with Him? And then secondly, though I'm secure in Him, what am I doing to share this with the people around me? And am I willing to be persecuted, rejected, and ridiculed like the apostles? Am I willing to do that and preach and share and witness with all boldness the name given above all names, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? His, his name we pray, amen.